Welcome back to How to Tickle Yourself. I'm your host, Duff McDonald, along with my co-host, Matt McButter. Today's guest comes from humble beginnings. She grew up in Midway City in Orange County, California, daughter of a heating and air conditioning contractor and a homemaker. But she's been on quite the journey since. She got her big break in Hollywood playing a $10 hooker in the 1985 John Landis movie, Into the Night. She followed that up by starring in the 86 horror comedy Vamp, playing a waitress fending off vampires. I'm talking about Dee Dee Pfeiffer, sibling of that other Pfeiffer, but an acting powerhouse in her own right. How much of a powerhouse? Well, in her career, she's acted alongside the likes of George Clooney, Keanu Reeves, Joan Cusack, Michael Douglas, and Jimmy Smits. On TV, she's been in guest roles on Ellen, Seinfeld, CSI, Friends, and ER. She starred with Sybil Shepard in the television comedy Sybil, playing Sybil's daughter. And she's currently starring in ABC's Big Sky as Denise Brisbane, a quick-witted and gossipy assistant at a private detective agency in Montana. The role is a return to acting for Dee Dee, who spent 10 years away from Hollywood to earn a master's degree in social work from UCLA, concentrating in mental illness, substance abuse, and homelessness. Some of that subject matter is close to home. Dee Dee is sober and an advocate for the long overdue open dialogue about addiction. She also believes in the paranormal and alien life forms. So we can talk to her about Hollywood, sobriety, self-realization and aliens are there any other topics that matter (laughs) welcome to the show dd it's great to have you thank you well what an introduction man that was better than this coffee over here that i was drinking i'm gonna at the present moment my love my dear Oh, everything's connected. This life, this world, it's all right now, right here. Right now, right here. Right now, right here. It's so great to have you and and for one what the the main reason for me that I thought about is this podcast is about the tickle of existence. How do you grab it? How do you hold it? And your life story to me offers an excellent sort of entree to talk about it. Right? You left a vibrant Hollywood career which most people would guess tickles a lot more than other careers. And went to pursue this master's in social work, which doesn't sound quite as ticklish. And but you've returned, right, to a a a starring role on on an ABC drama. So it wasn't you didn't leave because you'd lost your acting mojo. So, um, my first question is, how do you stay in touch with that divine inspiration, right, the tickle of existence itself, in a way that makes it possible for you to have two. that you've blended these two very different paths in the last 15 years. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on your guys' show. I am so grateful to be here today. Um, And I can I just say I love the name of your show. Oh, my God. When I saw this, you have an interview, Tickle Yourself. I went, (laughs) 
show. Finally, finally, it's working on someone. Somebody invited me on a show that I can relate to immediately. I didn't know what it was about. I said, but I have to be on a show that says tickle yourself. Um, I often, my my sense of humor is not only to make others laugh and smile and get all those uh, chemicals in the brain, you know, dopamine, serotonin, all that yummy stuff uh, exploding, but it bounces back to me. When I get you guys to smile and laugh, it bounces back. So it's a twofer. So I do tickle myself when I get you to laugh. Um, how do I keep, uh, whoa, I think, well, I think how I inspire myself by certainly what I was saying, by tickling myself, by tickling other people. I think that my heroine is to help people. I just love helping people. I love seeing um, the energy in another person change, shift a little bit when you maybe walk in a room and somebody's just snarky as hell. And then you just kind of throw a little happy bomb in there, a little light, a little joke, and you see their whole energy change. Or try this, run in front of somebody when they're going in Target or like the 99 cent store, my favorite place, and then run in front of them and go for the door. And they're about to call you an a-hole, right? I don't think cuss on this. And just then you open it for them. And you catch them about to call you an a-hole and, they, and you go, gotcha. And they go, oh, oh, thank you. Because so many people are rude. We do cut each other off. We don't use your blinker on the freeway because you're just going to get cut off. But like go out of your way to do something just randomly nice. It doesn't cost you anything to open the door for somebody, especially if you're about to make it look like you're going to cut them off. And then you actually throw a, a love bomb at them that kind of like it will can shift their day. Right. How do I incorporate my 10 years of education and then um, my sobriety is a huge part of my existence. And um, I'm a grateful, sober gal of four plus years. I was always a happy person, but I was slowly dying in my addiction because I was high functioning. So I, and I didn't know any different because my father was high functioning my whole, you know. Um, so uh, getting sober for me was huge and it really changed the structure of my life because it's been a rebirth. So now the challenge is, is to be an actor 30 plus years, right? With all my following. And then this 10 years of education and helping people in social welfare issues and blend those together. So I'm hoping one day to have a podcast like you guys, and then maybe have a talk show where I talk to people. I'm about that. Like, tell me, I'm not going to tell you what you need. You tell me what you need. And then let's have a conversation about it. And where's the solution in that? not sitting around bitching about it. We have a lot of shows that just sit around and bitch. How about the shows that talk about solutions? That's what I want to do. One of the um, solutions obviously is, and you talk about this a lot, is about the conversa- having the conversation about addiction itself, right? To, to get past the stigma and the shame. The sting. There's still sting, you know? I've been, I got, I feel like I got past that years ago and I sometimes forget it when I'm talking to people about stuff that might throw them a little and get into sort of the disastrous situations that I'd gone in and that I'm sort of free from now, it's like going from contraction to expansion, right? Instead of tight, it's very, it's, it's a loosening. So you seem to, from what I can tell from looking at other interviews, you love talking about this stuff. I think having the conversation is all about taking the sting out of it. Because let me tell you something, I would not, one of the reasons why I never asked for help is because there is social stigma around it. There's, at least in my generation, if you couldn't fix your problems, um, you were a loser, you were weak, right? I mean, I was grow, I grew up where you fell down, it hurt, get up, shake yourself out, put you, you know, lift yourself out of the boots and keep going, it doesn't hurt. Well, that we realize is, is good in some situations, but one does have to stop and acknowledge trauma. One does have to stop and say, hey, women, I can't do this by myself. I need help. But those things I was taught were a sign of weakness. And what I've discovered, it takes 
such strength to say, hey, I need help. I can't do this by myself. The shame I carried as, as a high-functioning al- alcoholic was kneecapping. Cause, and, I, and I was slowly dying because I didn't know how to say, hey, I need help. I can't do this alone. So I'm a huge one to say, and a lot of it's because we don't talk about it, right? In my family, we never talk about my dad's alcoholism. Oh, no, we don't talk about that. We don't talk about that big, fat elf in the room. So I want to be of the generation that says, yeah, we're going to have a conversation. But it doesn't have to be all like, oh, my God, she's an alcoholic. She's in recovery. It's like, yeah, I'm a single mother. I'm a social worker. I'm an actor. I'm also in recovery for alcoholism. I'm also crazy as fuck. I believe in aliens. <laughs> I rescue animals. It's like, just throw it in there. Throw it in there, right? It kind of should be just part of the conversation. It's not like, <gasps> should you say she's an alcoholic? Well, not active in my disease. I'm in recovery. Yeah, moving on. So let's talk about aliens and everything I've seen, <laughs> right? It's part of my journey in life, but we're still far from that, right? We still have people hiding in the bowels and the corners of society because there's still shame around it. So I'm trying in my own little way to try to take the sting out by just saying, hey, you five, nice to meet you. I'm in recovery. How are you? Who are you? You know, I listened to I listened to an interview you did uh, uh, about recovery uh, yesterday, and you, there was a great line in it. Uh, you said, "When you're in the addiction, you are the identified problem, and when you're in recovery, you're the identified possibility." So true. Think- right? The yo the yogis will tell you that you are always that possibility, mm-hmm. that your possibility itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's such a great change of perspective right we 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 go into skids when we get when we think we are the thing that's happening right and yeah. you are not that thing you are you are the self that it is happening to right you just need to turn around and look the other way yes kathy murphy the gal helped me get sober in um she used to run um breathe life healing center now she's in tennessee lucky tennessee people and she gave me all these zingers is what i call them zingers that was a beautiful one because every day that I decide that I'm going to continue on with this journey is another day that I get to say, I get to represent what it looks like to be the identified possibility for those around me who are looking at me, who know damn well that every day I'm doing it again, a day I'm showing up and I'm not using my DOC drug of choice. Right. And so instead of, it's just a perspective because when I was active in my disease, you are, whether you like it or not, society and your family and friends will call you the identified problem. Because that's mm-hmm. what's going on. But then the minute, the second you say, ah, I want to change, I've I, I hit my bottom, whatever that looks like for you, by the way. Your bottom looks different than everybody else's bottom. Don't let anyone tell you that. I'm not here to tell you that you hit your bottom. You know when you hit your bottom and what that looks like. And not a second before. And, you know, so every day I get to say, well, I don't always have great days, but I'm still the identified possibility because I'm showing people how to get through it without using my drug of choice, which is my default, which is what I know. My brain tells me to do that. My body tells me to do that. And I'm working against that, which I always say, getting sober is not for pussies. I'm sorry. But it's true, <laughs> right? It's hard. So tell me, where, where is that a weak thing? Just saying, I'm not going to use today. That is like, ooh, that's like a, that's a tough mother. I'm just saying, right? <laughs> but we like to think of us as these weak people. No, we're tough. Man, it's not easy doing what we're doing. And I'm, I don't expect a normie to understand. That's cool. But I know. Matt, do you, Matt, do you know that language? Normies? Normie? There's addicts and then there's normies. I, I know a little bit. Um, I, I know the term healthy normal as well, just from psychedelics research. Uh, you know, right now, a lot of the research is just on, um, you know, people with 
various conditions, obsessive compulsive disorder, addictions, PTSD, but there, the research is limited on what they call healthy normals, which is, you know, somebody who's doing it recreationally or just. I talk about the person who can leave a half a glass of wine at the table. I don't understand that person. I never did. I, my, I would go to that glass and go, you're going to leave now. Wait, no, you're not done yet. I mean, there's still there's wine in your glass, and that's how we think, right? Well, there's a crack of wine on the table. Not in my book. In my mind, that doesn't make sense. And in normally, they go, "Well, I'm finished." You're like, in my mind, they're not finished until that glass is dry. You know, what I mean? until they have the last. Yeah. And then there's a bottle at home waiting for you, right? So, yeah, the normies. Um, I have a lot of normie friends. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm a normie. You're, is, uh, yeah, you're a normie. Yeah, you're a normie. who doesn't struggle with addiction. There's not one thing that you use to excessiveness that disrupts your life in a negative way. Really, that's what I consider an addiction okay. is. Because right? you can be a lot of things. It doesn't have to be only drugs. I mean, I went to rehab with people, sex addicts, uh, gambling addicts, you know, love addicts, you know, heroin, meth. I was in there with everybody. I love those people. Those were my peeps. By the way, speaking of that, I always felt like an outsider. And I noticed that everybody else in rehab also common thread was not only trauma, I might add, undiagnosed, untreated trauma. It's a huge common factor, but also that we always felt like we were the outsider. We never felt we ever fit in. You want to see a group of people fit in, go to a rehab. You, you, I don't even know them. They didn't know me, but we got each other. Those were my peeps. Mm. These, they were my peeps. And to this day, you tell me you're in recovery or it's active in your disease. My heart goes, I, I, I love you, man. I get you. I get you. Mm. So how did you end up, what, what ended up um, sending you down the road to this master's degree? That's a, that's a big commitment. Dude, right? For about, I was, I'm three years into Big Sky, ABC, New Night, Wednesday, ABC, ah, Wednesday, September 21st. Do you see that shameless plug? I just slipped that in there. That's going to keep me employed, boys. Um, uh, 13 years ago, um, I was acting. It was like 30, just 30 years. The industry had changed and I was kind of getting discouraged that I was paying the girl to watch my boys. I'm a single mother, two boys and all these rescued animals. I got a little frustrated that, that, that the, the babysitter was making more money than I was making on the set. So I was doing a lot of independence and there was not a lot of roles. And I just, I wasn't crazy about the way the industry wasn't as loyal to me as I was to it. I also had two boys I'm raising. And I was like, what are we saying about women and aging in front of the camera? <laughs> You're not allowed to, but the guys get gray and, and wrinkly and pudgy tummies and they look sexy. We do that. We're unemployed. Right. So at this point in my entire life, I was always doing volunteer work for everything. Children's hospital, uh, project angel food, AIDS, you name it, homelessness, animals. So at this point I thought I'm going to go and want to get one of those things called a degree. I thought I could go get it in a year. I graduated in 82. Yes. Dinosaurs were still walking around. No computers, no cell phones. 82 do the boys, the math boys long time ago. Um, so I just, I thought, I think I want to go get a degree to help people on a larger level than just volunteering. Good time to take a break from acting. Clearly had not a clue what I was doing. So I walk up to the community college and say, Hey, I want to get a degree and help people. And they're like, well, what degree is that, ma'am? I said, I don't know. You tell me. And they're like, no, ma'am, that's not how it works. Plus, I said, well, I just want to help people. And they're like, well, what, what do you want to do? Like be a psych major? I said, sure, that sounds good. Let's start there. And they're like, oh, Jesus. So they gave me this thing called my Getsy. And they're like, well, the four-year plan, my like, four years. Oh, what? No, I, don't have, I can't do four years. And they're like, well, but that's. And then they said, well, let's do some, some testing on you. Sure enough, I did not understand why two plus X equals five. 
I thought it was a typo. Why would there be an X in there? Isn't this math? It's called algebra. What the hell is that? They asked me to write a prompt, a paragraph on something that clearly I was very opinionated about, like the way I talk. I wrote for three pages, no periods, no capitals, no not rhyme, nor reason. And they were like, well, she's opinionated to no business. She had not a clue how to write, but she's certainly opinionated. This woman doesn't know. She's less than a fifth grader. So I sent the most of my four-year journey, my AA, with two kids in tow doing prerequisites just to catch up to what most of these kids are learning in second grade now, right? So it took a long time because I'm a hardhead. I didn't want to give up. I took my kids into tutoring sessions, you know, in one arm over here. And um, I just kept going and going. And then I did community college route, got my bachelor's in psych. And then I took a, a turn from a psych major to a, a, a master's of social work. And I got into UCLA, which um, I'm still kind of in shock about. I have imposter syndrome <laughs> really bad. I still have that. Just like when I get a role in a movie, I always go, you know, you you called me for this role, right? I think you meant to get Patricia Arquette, right? I mean, she told me she you know, and um, you called me though, and I'm here on the set. I did the same thing in school. I was like, you know that, that you meant to get the other applicant, you know? Um, but one thing about us older students, we're always raising our hand in the back. We are there to learn. They were like, Dorothy, please put her hand down. She always wants to think I'm here to learn, okay? <laughs> um, so, uh, then I was literally, I, I had a two year UCLA graduate program. I had done a year at that point. It was like nine years into it. And I hit what would say my bottom, but honestly, it wasn't one thing. I hit multiple bottoms. I was one of those that just hit bottom after bottom after bottom. I was always trying to quit. Always, just like smoking, but I couldn't do it. And the shame and the feeling of failure around the fact I couldn't was just awful. And it finally, in my how old am I 58? Yeah. In my late forties, there I am my first year into it. I just finished. And I think I just, the signs were really unraveling because I was already looking on at the TV at the 1-800 addiction. You call anonymously every night. I looked at that every night. And then a family member came to me that week and said, Hey, we want to do an intervention. And I said, no, 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 you don't have to do that. You're not going to pull that fucking car, are you? And you're all going to record letters to me in that fucking show. And of course, they're like, no. And I said, you don't, I said, you don't have to. I've already been looking at numbers. I'll go. Just tell me where to go. Just take care of my kids and my animals. I was in rehab two days later, intensive, impatient. Didn't see or talk to anybody for a minute, a long time. And that started my journey. But it was like the universe just, because had they came to me a year before, I would have told them to F off. Cause that's how we play, right? I'm ready when right. I'm ready, not when you tell me I'm ready. So everything worked together. So I'm so lucky. And then, so I took a year off of college, which scared the shit out of me. I have no money at this point, right? Bill's racking up. So I went back to my last year at UCLA sober. That was, and, and I quit smoking. It was, I, I'm still trying to get the hair back from that one. Um, but then my brother-in-law texted me out of nowhere. I was doing the internship at the Department of Mental Health saying, hey, Didi. I didn't even know he had my number. I mean, no, I love David. We love each other. But we talk about fishing at Christmas. Right? I have a big family. We just don't talk shop. Don't even really talk shop with Michelle, right? So he goes, hey, Didi, uh, this is David. Uh, are you still acting? I have a, a role on this thing called Big Sky. I'm doing named Denise. I think you're great for I almost dropped my fucking phone. I said, are you kidding me? Because I had no idea how I was going to support myself as a social worker. With two kids and all these animals, they make 50000 if you're lucky when you first get out. And I was already in debt. So what do you think my answer was? 
Y E S S S S S S S S S. Yeah, I was in shock. I'm still in shock. Three years into the show, I'm still in shock. So I finished my master's while doing the pilot of Big Sky during COVID. A lot. Awesome. Tell a woman she can't, or a man that she can't do it. We can't put it in front of me, and I'll do it. Let's talk paranormal. Matt, this is more your wheelhouse. So you film Big Sky in New Mexico, right? Yes. So what? how many um, aliens have you met down there? What have you seen? First, can I just say something now that the house of all these government people are now saying it's okay to come out. They have committees where you can go report what you saw. But now they're trying to make us people who have been told we are crazy. We are nuts. We are Bob down the farm who's drinking too much. He said he's awesome last night. You know, we're all the crazies right now. We're not crazy. All these military people who've also saw us, right? All these astronauts, we're all not crazy anymore. Oh, thank you for permission to, to be, for people to stop making fun of us, which people still will, right? So that's just silly. Um, and also, what, why are you so scared if I believe? That's, isn't that a question? Don't you think about that? Why does it yeah. bother you so bad that I believe in something that scares the shit out of you? Because the bottom line is this. If they really want to hurt us, just let's go there for a minute. They would have by now because we're being very naughty with our planet Earth right now. <laughs> okay, we are like a right. children, like a two-year-old with a gun. We have no right with these nukes and we don't know what we're doing with this Earth at all. So if I was them, I would have spanked us by now, you know? So, and they haven't. Well, they have. Well, maybe, maybe they haven't fattened us up enough. I mean, I, I have a theory that, you know, the eyedropper, the primordial goo four billion years ago in this planet yeah. could have been a way of, you know, yeah. This planet could be a farm. Dude, actually, if you look at some of the evidence that, <laughs> and the footage and just like some of these hypotheses as to how they roam, the lot they're doing, they are. And we farm. Why would they yeah. not farm? I mean, you know, and, you know, so I, okay, New Mexico. Dude, there was some, yeah. hey, um, where do I start? Um, <laughs> first, I love, I did this on one of my shout outs. On my Instagram, I do these random thoughts. And one of them was, how do you know there's paranormal? Get your face out of your phone for a minute and look up. There's probably a UFO right a, a, above your head. You'd never notice it because you're like, yeah, there's no UFO. Really stupid. Look up. It's <laughs> <laughs> probably up there shitting on your head. You'd be like, oh, that's weird. That's the bird. No, dude, look up. Like, just don't tell me there's nothing up there if you don't even bother to look up because you can't get your face out of your phone. Anyways, so I saw... <laughs> One night I, I slept on the couch the entire time I was there because I had this huge window. I could see up at the stars and New Mexico is like 5,000 elevation. The stars are like this big. They're just big They're And they're gorgeous skies. And I would watch, I see the helicopters and I saw the planes and what have you. And one time I looked up and I didn't have my glasses on and I'm blind as a bat. And I, and without my glasses, anything that all looks like UFOs, right? But there was one that was, it, it moved different. And I went, no way. Get out. So I scramble over. I grab my glass. I put it on and I look up and I went, that thing's moving different. That, and the, the first thing you do when you first time you see one is try to explain it away. It's just the, the normal human thing we do. I'm like, oh, that's a plane. No, it's not moving like a plane. Well, that's got to be like a drone. Drone. Wait a minute. This is clear sky. That is not a drone. Um, is it a helicopter? No, it's not a helicopter. You, so my friends were like, why did you grab your phone? I said, because I was trying to make sense of it. You're kind of in shock. And then it moved in this kind of fluid way and it disappeared. Clear sky, stars. It just disappeared. And I was like, oh, I'm locked on now. You're going to come back. Right. And it never did. 
And I literally almost started getting teary-eyed and I said, thank you. Thank you for letting me see this. Now I will be officially crazy. My family and friends didn't already think I was crazy. I went to the big sky going, I saw you. They're like, yeah, sure you did, Dee Dee. I'm like, guys, come on, I did. Um, some believe, some don't. Um, and then in my house, I had a little, I had a little something in my house from the peripheral vision. I would see it run. And I kept thinking it was my cat. And I asked my son, I was like, Max, did you, is there something you're seeing in your peripheral vision? And he goes, yeah, I kept thinking it's Lenny, but it's not. I go, yeah, no, it's weird, huh? He goes, yeah. And he goes, don't mom, don't, I'm not going to the crazy train with you. <laughs> Listen, I'm just saying, I'm, it's weird. We're both kind of, and he goes, I'm just tired. I said, oh, okay. Two days later, he says, I said, is it still happening? And he goes, yeah, he goes, I almost tripped over it because it was so almost visual that he almost tripped over it and it wasn't there. And I said, oh, wow, that's, you really need some sleep, don't you, dear? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there was something, this white fog came into my headlight when I was driving down the dirt road to get to where I was staying. There was no fog, 80 degrees at night. And it was this thick fog that was going into my light, headlights. And some of them were balls. And then it stopped. I'm not sure what that was. Have you been following the, you know, declassification of UFOs by the U.S. government at all? Uh, no, but I watch the shows that do, like the Secret Skinwalker Ranch. I love that. Dude, they're using the scientific method. That's what we use in college to verify validity of, you know, the things that you, when you come at it at all angles, try to... Mm-hmm. Right. When you're trying to, it's the only way to do it. Yeah. Right. That I, show is using the scientific methods. Those non-believers that say, watch that show for the first season. That's just kind of silly, but watch the second, the third season. Cause it wraps it all up. And that third <laughs> season that I just watched, I was like, Whoa, it's, you cannot, it, it's, I don't know how you can look at that show and say, that's not real information and evidence of something that we cannot put in, in our box. And then people go, oh, it's just Russia and China, you know, puts flying things over our sky. I go, do you think that the American military would let anything from China or Russia just float over our sky and not go after that thing at 100 miles an hour? They're just going to let that be. They're just going to go, oh, there goes China. There goes one of the weird things. They did. Oh, there goes Russia. No, we would take that puppy down in a minute. I mean, come on. So if they're not going after that, <laughs> then why are they like letting it just be, oh, it's an air balloon? We got a shitload of air, a lot of air balloons, don't we, in this country? We got a lot of air balloons. Yeah. And we're like a big freaking festival with balloons everywhere. What is New Mexico? They got balloons in the sky there. But those are real balloons. <laughs> um, the neighbors, I thought, were the most amazing. She's an, arch- um, an architect. She worked with the tribes. And her husband is a vet. And they were not believers. And when they moved to New Mexico, she started working with the tribes. And a lot of the discoveries, she was like, whoa, hold on. This doesn't make sense. It actually only makes sense if you think if you think of it in the broader sense. That there's other, you know, life forms and what have you. And there has been for a long time. Then everything that they've been talking about and their, all their art makes perfect sense. And what they uh, believe, right? So there's her. He's like, uh, he's a vet. He works for the federal government. He's like, uh-uh. Well, he, there's there's something in their house. And he said that every time he looked up, there's a book coming out it, that came out of the bookshelf behind him. And he finally had to say, okay, I believe, God, just stop it. And they had to have a shame, shaman come in and have a conversation with this little spirit because the guy, this old vet was like, okay, I believe, begrudgingly. 
because there was no explanation why this book kept coming out of the bookshelf. Come to find out the guy who owned the house went to the light in that, in that um, library that he stayed in. And then that village I stayed in had three shamans have to come into it to kind of talk to the spirits, to ask them to live in harmony with the families because they were creating quite a ruckus, I guess. <laughs> I love that. Do you, do you meditate? Oh, no, I'm too busy for that. Same with that. Yeah. I'm- it's not that I'm too busy. I, I, I have trouble. I just have trouble getting into the zone. I'm just, my mind's like, I gotta, I gotta be doing something like else. me. And in rehab, they made me do it begrudgingly. And oh my God, but you know what happened when they made me sit there, like sit there in acting class, they'd make me sit on my hands. They'd make me sit on my hands in acting class and just be like, I'm about to implode <laughs> on my hands. Um, I discovered that you can meditate in all different ways without sitting there. I'm I like when I'm mm-hmm. with my dogs, I just start using my different senses. Like I'll mm-hmm. like listen and then I'll just smell, then I'll like touch and then I'll like look. And that's a form of meditation. Just kind of like coming, bringing it back down to in the moment. Um, there's different ways. Yeah. Right. Same, 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 yeah. same. Like just to sit yeah. there in, in this, in the living room and I would probably implode. Small M, small M meditate. Not, not big M maybe. Yeah. Yeah. A little small yeah. M meditate. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but I get asked it all the time. They're like, do you meditate? Like, are you saying I should? What do you think? What about, what about God? Do you believe in God? Drunks. Hmm? God group of drunks. G O D. Okay. Anyways, uh, <laughs> really awesome. AA meeting too. And sometimes they, well, the first year I went every day, the first year, my sobriety, the treatment plan that I was in, you had to go once a day, every day, which is one reason why I had to take a year off of school. I had to hundred percent commit to my sobriety. Um, because I was, I'm in a very crazy field. And if I didn't really get my sober legs under me, relapse was inevitable. So I remember I they would say some of these people were like so heavy on God and I don't have it like a God, like everybody else. Um, and I certainly through being active in my addiction for so many years, super far away from my sobriety. I mean, um, spirituality, super far away from it. So as we know to get sober, it helps tremendously if you can have believe in something that's bigger than you that's it that's all that's all it means like if that doorknob right. is bigger than you that doorknob you think is more powerful than you then that's your god that's what michael told me she's like i don't give a shit what your god looks like so this guy raises and he's my my god is a group of drunks and i went i like you what's your name bob you know i was like right group of drunks <laughs> god okay wow i still see that point i don't get no, no 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 i'm with you so it's like just uh surrender you you got to be able to surrender. My I did I had to work on my on my spirituality. I had to say, well, I believed it in my head that Mother Earth, for instance, that that's just bigger than me. Mother Earth is bigger than all of us. Mother Earth is a big bad bitch, and she's alive, and she well she's alive now. If we don't stop killing her, um, she's alive, and she's more powerful than us, and she does whatever in the hell she wants to do. She lives life on life terms, whether we like it or not. You might be having a beautiful day, but she throws a hurricane at you. You better adjust real fast, okay? So sorry, she's a little bit more powerful and bigger than you and all of us. So I got that here, but it took me a good year to really pull it from my head and into a belief in my heart. So I had mm. to kind of fake it till I made it. I would say mm-hmm. it out loud. I went to the AA book, scratch out all the words God. And I suggest mm. anybody who's trying to use AA, fantastic way to get sober. But if the word God is tripping you up and it did me, go in there, buy your book anyways, it's yours. Cross out the word God and put doorknob, mother earth, aliens. I don't care what's bigger than you. 
I mean, more powerful than you that you know in your head right now. And eventually, if you keep saying it like anything else, you start to believe it. classic conditioning. And now it's in my heart and I love Mother Earth. And now I've become not an environmentalist, but I'm really trying to become slowly zero waste, you know, just slowly. So now that's like a new thing I'm doing, you know, slowly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We talked about it in season one of the podcast. Uh, uh, we had an episode called The Altar at Which You Pray. And it was, I was basically talking about Dylan's song, You Gotta Serve Somebody, right? And he Mm -hmm. says, it may be the devil, maybe the Lord, doesn't matter. You gotta kneel at some altar and surrender to it. And then you'll be able to sort yourself out, sort of let go of your ego. Well, everybody does. Everybody has some kind of altar that they kneel at, no matter matter what, whether they've even thought about it, you know, whether it's capitalism, whether it's, you know, your... Marvel movies, whether it's, you know, every, everybody does kind of have this, you know, belief system, right? I do. What I've noticed on my journey is that there's this word that we don't use a lot. And it's interesting why we don't is humility, Mm -hmm. humble. And what I've discovered with really becoming in harmony with my, what people call higher power. I try not to use those things because that's, those are trigger words for a lot of people. For me, when I was active in my disease, you said, God, higher power, AA, I'd be like, "Ah, you're crazy. Get out of here. Right. Um, Because my addict was not ready and that would scare me away. But I think that, and that's okay. Certain words are triggers for people. That's cool. But Mm -hmm. me like thinking of mother earth, she makes me humble. She makes me, uh, I have like humility when I think of how beautiful that is. And I see like NASA footage of our earth from up looking down. Makes me feel really little and humble and appreciative. And I think those qualities are super important. Um, that, that's kind of for me, it. Yeah, one, one of, the, one of the, my favorite terms from yoga is they, call, they refer to supreme reality. So it's the supreme right? That you don't even have to turn it into a religious thing there. You just sort of have to realize that you are in a greater context that is the supreme context, right? And you sort of get out of your own head. And here's something that I had to realize on my own. Here's, you, there, everybody has their authentic self, which is the core of who you are, right? It's who you are. And then when you have this addiction surrounding and choking the real self you don't get to be your authentic self you have not a clue right. who you are anymore because that addiction will kneecap anything that you love anything you want to do it just destroys everything so what happens is once we pull that part of us that addictive part and like i call mine I, my addict has a name her name is wd40 or 50 50 wd50 <laughs> <laughs> that bitch is in the trunk of my car because here's the bottom line. Go, oh, you don't drink anymore. So it, it's not a problem. I said, Oh, well, hell no. There's always a drink waiting for me. I just to make sure to watch for my addict WD fitty. When she starts to do push-ups. <laughs> when that bitch starts to do push-ups is when I have to go, hold on T O T O. I need to call somebody to say, I think, I think WD fitty jumped out of my trunk and it's in the back seat. And she's tapping on my shoulder. I got to pull that car over. And say, bitch, I did not let you out of the trunk. You will crash this car with me in it if I allow it. So get your ass back in that trunk. 
where you belong. Let me drive this car because I know how to drive. You don't. You almost killed us. And that's kind of how it is inside with one's addict. So if you can almost pull them apart, give them a name, have compassion for the fact that my addict was just trying to do what she knew just to keep right. alive. But the problem right. with add, you're, the addict in you, they destroy things that they don't. It's like a child, like I said, with a gun. They're like, hey, what's this? And they just start shooting the room. And that's what an addict is doing. They're trying to do something. So but how do you even know what the authentic self is when the addict is just surrounding it, right? So once you did the treatment, the treatment in that is to tease them apart, right? right. Where the work is. So I always say, uh-uh, WD Fitty. And you know WD Fitty stands for? <laughs> I'm so weird. No, I'm trying to figure it out. I know, right? It's kind of a, they, they said in rehab, name your addict because you're going to start calling your addict as you know as almost like a child or a best friend or whatever because you have to learn to love your addict i'm like i hate that bitch and they were like Dee, okay first of all <laughs> i said well i'm a neighbor bitch Dee. <laughs> okay well here's the problem every time you address your addict you're gonna have anger because you named your bitch how about i said well because she's just she's the reason why <laughs> sitting here in my 50s in rehab crying like a child <laughs> like a loser i'm not happy with her right now so anyways <laughs> I said, how about, so I, I had this piece of paper and we were drawing these pictures and stuff. And I thought, um, it felt like when, when I was, when my addict was activated, when you're in your disease, like a, like I was trying to tame a wild dragon. That's what she felt like. Cause when she wanted to go drink, there was no take, no prisoners. Right. So wild dragon. So I said, WD. And then I was, <laughs> I was in my fifties. So I like fitty when I, the minute I turned 50, I'd never call myself 50. I always said 50. I had a 50 party, right? Because 50 doesn't have to be all old and gross. I had a 50 party. So I said, okay, well, WD 50. And then I realized something else later on. Someone said, oh, like WD 40. And I said, that's interesting because WD 40, what does it do? When you put lubricant, it puts, takes a squeak out, right? What's your addict trying to do? Ah, uh, yeah. Shake the squeak out, shut things down, trying to, but it usually backfires, right? <laughs> so WD Fitty is my my um addict, yeah. Well, I'd say I'd like to meet her one day, but we don't. So keep her in the trunk. And okay. uh, but you know, because she's got one of the best addict names I've ever heard. So well, it helps me have compassion for that side of me that was trying to do the only thing I knew, considering as a child and alcoholic parent grew up in a society where it's like, ah, well, your dad drank too much. Oh, well, well, if he was married to your mom, he would too. I mean, this is the generation I grew up in, right? Of course he drinks. Look at the, you know, you're like, what? That doesn't make me, what do you mean? Of course he drinks. That's what? So yeah. So I did, I, I still have to work on having compassion for her. It's, it does, it's not my default, but it's baby steps every day, baby steps. Well, look, uh, we're, I think we're running out of time here. It's been a delight to have you. Really? I did not. I was right when I wore my fierce shirt here today. Yeah. This was the fiercest yeah. guest we've ever had by far. Oh, now. I love it. <laughs> hey, listen, guys, you gotta have me back when the show uh, airs because it's going to be crazy this season. Like we have Reba McIntyre. We got um, Rex. We got uh, Jensen. We got Roseanne Arquette. We have like a, another huge, amazing a lineup of guest stars that we bring on, we play, and sometimes we kill them. Sometimes, you know, we don't know in big sky, anybody's game. <laughs> so yeah. So listeners, big sky on ABC. What did, what'd you say? Wednesdays, ABC new night, Wednesdays, we air September 21st, 10 PM Pacific time 
Um, like I said, I promise you, we will not let you down this season. It's, I mean, we were, it's a third season. We never let you down, but this season, we're just really good doing something. It's just going to be super fun. And Denise leaves the office. <gasps> you don't understand. <laughs> if you see the show, which I won't ask you if you've seen the show, I won't put you on the spot. She's always in the office. Always right. in the office. All my followers are like, what, what does Denise do? So oh, follow me on Instagram and you'll see, I did a fun video where I said, what does Denise do all day long when the girls are out solving crimes? And all these people, celebrities and friends and family came in and they said some really funny things as to what my character does when no one's looking. And I put it all together with this funny circus music. <laughs> and then, um, yeah, my sister's in there. A lot of the cast are in there. It, it, they're fun. DD5 for official. Go check it out. Part one, two, and three. Yeah. Um, on, on a, on a closing note, your, your sister, my wife told me that your sister is the first woman she ever had a crush on. Oh, I love that. Like I get man crushes. Right. Yeah. No, she, she was the one that turned her that and facing that direction. She right? is amazing. My sister is amazing. Just for anyone out there. No, there's no jealousy. She's my best friend. Like my other sister with the three of us and my brother were very tight. We're very, very tight. And she's everything you think she is. She's not only beautiful on the outside, on the inside. And she's smart and she's talented. And she's all those things you hate about another person, but I can't hate her because she <laughs> is one of the most beautiful people I've ever met. I can only be like her. It'd be awesome. But in my own way. Yeah. My Lucy way. <laughs> Thank you, Dee. Dee. It was you. a delight to have you. Thank you. Wow. Yeah. Boundless energy. Boundless. She reminds me of, uh, you know, a few people that I've, I've met in my life where the energy is not contained, (laughs) just not contained. (laughs) You know, it's, it it, it was very, very enjoyable. And also just a, just like a, uh, vibrating at a higher oscillation or whatever you'd call it. It's like, there's just more power coming out of that. Uh, entity like mm-hmm. than uh than most people we know wow she's fun also just kind of what a crazy um uh journey to go from a solid acting career to masters of social work without <laughs> without actually having a plan mm-hmm. uh and then to get the call uh from david kelly to be back on the show it's like she's basically just letting life come at her the way it should right mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. uh starting to work out for it. And to her point, as soon as you get your addiction out of the way, things can start happening for you again. Um, addiction, slow you down and basically take your eye off the ball. She's pretty, that's it. What are, what an inspirational story. I didn't realize that I'm, that there was even such a thing as the addict name, her WD 40. Do you have, I a, didn't, do you have one? No, no, I don't. I don't. Um, but I think I might have to, and she set the bar high with WD 50. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, so I, I think I hear people say sometimes, or you may even have said, you know, the old Duff, the new Duff. Duff something? 1.0. Duff yeah. 1.0, right? Something more like that, but actually sort of naming it. And I thought it was important that she said, you know, having compassion for that person, you know, having compassion oh, totally. for that, for that side of you is a really important part that I never really thought like there, because there is, you know, I, yeah, as, no, as self, I hear so self, self-loathing and yeah. Self-hate gets you nowhere. And the thing is, is what you got to realize what um, uh, she was getting at is that you, unless you're acting with purely malign intent, mm-hmm. right? If you're going to rob a bank or do something like the, in our daily lives, people that get in trouble, everybody is trying to do their best, 
right? It may not look like it from the outside when you're like, get your shit together, stop drinking, stop fucking everything up. It's like, do you think that people want to be there? Of course not. Exactly. They, and right. So the compassion for the, for the sort of miss sort of misguided part of you that got you off track. Of course you have to have it because mm-hmm. beating yourself up is the worst. It get, it, it's, it keeps you in a place that you don't want to be. I used to feel bad about, um, you know, I basically drank my way out of my marriage and, um, I did not treat, uh, my ex-wife well, uh, in the end, I, you know, it wasn't, um, you know, physical abuse or anything, but I was, I was not kind to her. It took me a long time to let go. I was like, wow, that's the worst thing I've ever done in my entire life. I even wrote about it in tickled. And Mm -hmm. it's like, you gotta let, you gotta let it go and forgive yourself at some point because all you're doing otherwise is sort of dragging around a story that isn't you. Anyway, on 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 a related note, I've got one for you. I was in um, England. We were in England uh, last week. Uh, we spent Joey and Marguerite and I spent a week with my older brother Scott and his wife Julia and their I daughter. Saw some Ines. photos. Looked fun. I saw the fre- homemade fre- fresh cut sushi, fresh cut mackerel. Um, we went to Harry Potter studios outside London, which is one of the coolest things of all time. All the sets are still there, right? You go into Dumbledore's office, you go into the main, uh, dining hall at Hogwarts, you go into Hagrid's hut, you go through the, a piece of the enchanted forest. Uh, you can walk into the Dursley's house on private drive. No, it was pretty, it was crazy. Um, however, so when we were down in Devon, my brother gave me, uh, a book, uh, by this guy, Stephen Reynolds. Um, I'm just gonna remember what that was here. It was a really beautiful book about, um, it's called a poor man's house. And it was about a fisherman in, uh, Devon near where my brother lived. So from a hundred years ago or so hundred plus, um, but here's the apropos part. It's, it was, they were, they were referring to a drink. Um, and, um, the name for this drink at the time was the mother-in-law and the contents of it are stout and bitter. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's terrible. That that shit will get you canceled. I didn't, yeah. I didn't make it up. I'm just reporting back what I heard. And the other thing from that book, he was talking about all the stray cats in the neighborhood, right? Because they're there because it's a fishing town. So the cats are all, um, you know, looking for all the the fish bodies and stuff. And he said, if we got rid of them, we would lose our greatest garbingers. Garbinger. A garbinger. That's it's 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 a some sort of portmanteau. I don't. I mean, I know what a har, harbinger is. Right. I looked yeah. it up. It's not the dictionaries don't acknowledge it, but I guess it's something that goes through your garbage and cleans cleans up some of the garbage that you need getting rid of. Because he was basically saying, if we got rid of the cats, we'd lose our best garbinger. <laughs> a garbage. <laughs> a garbinger of. Things to come. <laughs> yeah. Garbinger <laughs> of, you know, cleaning yeah. up the, the, the fish slop. Okay. So in London, we did two things. We went to, um, Harry Potter studios. And then the next day 
we went to the Harry Potter musical uh, in the West End at, uh, it's called Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. Oh, I was going to say, I didn't know that was a musical. I thought it was just a play. Is it a, is it a musical? The Cursed Child? Sorry, it's a play. Okay, right. I was about to say, I, I did, I read the yeah. uh, screenplay when it, when it came out because it came out shortly after I'd read the, read the books and I just wanted more, so. Here's the crazy thing. Um, three hours in, there's this huge scene and basically, um, you know, there's some time travel stuff in it and some crazy stuff happens. It's like the bad guys win and we're all, uh, we're walking out of the theater and I was like, damn, that was unexpected. Mm-hmm. And, um, we all go and my, uh, sister-in-law, Julia has this one, her favorite restaurant. We're going, we're having some seafood. It's just delicious. And I'm just like, I did not see that coming. And, uh, suddenly the rest of the group is like, uh, dude, this is just the intermission. (laughs) And I was like, what? (laughs) So we were having, (laughs) we were having dinner and I was like, wait, what? The it's six hours long. What? Yeah, the screenplay uh, it was actually quite short. I remember like taking it down in a couple of hours. Right, six hours <laughs> long. It's and like it's uh some of the stuff on stage, some of the sort of magical stuff that they do, like yeah. how they show someone casting a spell, right, using the wand and stuff. There's some crazy pyrotechnics and stage technology. There, it's worth it for that. Yeah, it's All, running in Toronto right now. At, it's at, running down in it's in New yeah. York too. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also notice that Harry Potter is everywhere in England. Right, you can't go anywhere without stumbling it. Like we went into a souvenir shop. We we're getting Marguerite a little double decker bus. There's a whole Harry Potter table, random sh- shop. Like that, th- I had no idea. Like I'm as uh, we're acknowledged fans of of the. Mm-hmm. Uh, story and J.K. Rowling, but I had no idea what a um, monster money machine that thing was outside of the books and the movies. Mm. It's a merchandising gold mine. Mm. Me neither. I didn't. I mean, I've been to Harry Potter, whatever it's called, Harry Potter World, Potterver, the Potterverse down at Universal Studios. Incredible, incredible. Oh my God! Those, those if you go to London, go to Harry Potter Studios. It's mind blowing. It's mind blowing. Just let me write that down. It's on my list. And to close out today, instead of Oribindo, I'm going to um, read something from uh, my guy, um, Ramesh Balsakar, who I was reading while I was in England. And he's talking about surrender here. It's one of the reasons I brought it up to Dee Dee. And, you know, as she said, you can say to God, to the Lord, to whatever, but you can also just surrender to the universe, right? The point being is that it's simply an acknowledgement that you are not the ultimate doer that you're part of something bigger than yourself. Um, I know this is hard for a lot of people to, to process, but just take it on faith on that. And the point is, if you just get out of your own way, the universe can act through you, right? And he makes a few points that I tried to make in season one. The main one being that if you can shed your ego, um, you no longer need stories about why this thing or that thing has happened, right? Because what the ego is, is it takes credit. So when you tell a story about, um, you know, how you got to be where you, this situation that you're in right now, when we, when we, when the ego tells the story, it needs time, right? Cause it says, this is what led to that. 
And um, when you lose the ego, you don't need time anymore because you don't need any explanations about why things happen. You can stop being distracted and simply reside in the present moment where all the action is anyway, right? <clears throat> um, so here we go. In throwing the burden of the cares and fears onto him, we throw away also the illusory individual, the ego, who had quite unnecessarily assumed the burden so that not only the existing worries, but the very problem of life simply ceases to exist. When conceptualization ceases, the concept of time, the conditioning of the past and the fears about the future on which it is based also vanishes, and we actually experience the present moment in which we see ourselves as mere units for perceiving the universal functioning and not as distinct and separate organisms with supposed independence of choice and action. And ultimately, the point of that is, if you can let go of the need to try to control, what you will realize is that things, it doesn't, if when you let go of control, everything doesn't stop, right? Things keep happening. You just release yourself from a burden that you don't need to live under. And it's the same in addiction, and it's the same in lots of life, right? If you can just surrender and let go to the glory that is the universe, the aliens from Roswell, New Mexico will come down, fatten you up, put you on their spaceship, and take you away for dinner. <laughs> right? Wasn't that where that was going? Thanks for listening. We'll be back with you next week. <laughs> Bye-bye. After present moments, traveling town to town, mystery of emotion right here, right now. Right here, right now Whoa, right here, right now You've been listening to How to Tickle Yourself with your hosts, Duff McDonald and Matt McButter. You can help us by liking, subscribing, and sharing this podcast with others. You can talk to us and see what else is happening on Instagram and Facebook at How to Tickle Yourself. This program was recorded in Studio B of the historic Rockledge Recording Studio and the Tunnel Under Arundel. Right here, right now, our original 16-part theme music was written and recorded by the legendary Paul Reddick and Kyle Ferguson of the Sidemen with the brilliant Steve Mariner on bass and drums and in the mixing room. The podcast is produced and distributed by Storic Media. Our editor is Andrew Steiner. Our coordinator is Samantha Abramovitz. Our producers are Kristen Verbitsky and Chuck LaBella. For more information, visit storicmedia.com. That's S-T-O-R-I-C media.com. My love, my dear.